Old Testament reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes 10, verses 12 through 15. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us as people for our good. Inerrant, fallible, perfect to accomplish all of his purposes. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 12. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips. At the beginning, his words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness, and the fool multiplies his words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell him what will happen after him? A fool's work wearies him. He does not know the way to town. Amen. And if you would go to James chapter 1. Our sermon text. James 1, verses 26 and 27. Once again, God's holy word. Give your attention to its reading. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to our God in prayer once more. Oh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to look at your word, to receive from it. We pray that you would teach us, that you would visit us in a mighty way, and by your spirit, build us up uh, in the truth of your word, the bread of life, heavenly food, that we come before you humbly and ask for. Speak through your servant. Cleanse him that he might be used of you for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. There's a common mentality that you can see oftentimes uh, amongst many Christians today that would disparage the idea of religion and that would pit it against what most people would call a relationship with Jesus. I think there was a video about 10 years ago that made its way around, and you see other things uh, to this effect, why I hate religion but love Jesus. Now, this is a, a, a very wrong mindset. Uh, we, we shouldn't disparage the idea of religion, but you often see the point that they are driving at with these kinds of things, because the word religion can be used in a very general sense to include all the vain strivings of various belief systems. It can also include a a, a merely formal 
and outward nominal Christianity that within it has no vital connection to Christ for the believing individual. In generations past, this is not so much a problem anymore, though there are lingering effects of it, but uh, it used to be that Christianity was the cultural thing that made someone socially acceptable, kind of made you a civil person. It used to be that you could not advance to almost any station in life without a a standing membership in in a church, a Christian church. That, of course, has fallen off quite a bit. That is not the point that that James is driving at here, to, to pit religion against relationship with Christ. Here in this passage, he teaches us that there is a a good, a pure, a wonderful form of religion, and he'll talk about that. But there also is a worthless type of religion, even within what James is thinking of in regards to, in, in connection to Christianity. There is a worthless religion that would call itself Christian. Where do we find that worthlessness? Well, it essentially comes down to a Christianity that claims... All that Christianity would say for the heart of the believer, but in the most obvious and ever-present and growing body of evidence, that is, what comes out of one's mouth, that that is in direct conflict with what we claim is in our hearts. To claim that Christ has purified us, that he has cleansed us, that he has given us a new purpose, which is uh, chiefly to bring him glory, and, and then to then have the kind of death, the kind of destruction that James describes here comes out of your mouth. That is worthlessness. The tongue can be used for not God's glory, but for an opposing purpose, for self-interest, to run after worldly lusts, to tear others down and mistreat them, James has a discouraging assessment for those who use their tongue in these ways. But he also sets before us pure, undefiled, acceptable religion, which is seen in a generosity and a care for others and in battling worldliness and seeking holiness. And these three things, a concern about the tongue and what we say, also a life of generosity pointed towards those who are in need and in a concern for battling worldliness. And those three things, we have almost uh, an outline for the rest of James. He's going to return to all three of those themes in greater detail. And it really provides a blueprint for what James has just described, living as a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Those are three of the most important aspects of being a doer of the word. That is what it means to be a Christian. Not simply to claim it, but to live in light of our standing in Christ, to feed on God's grace in order that we might more and more die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Three ideas today, and we'll spend most of the time on the first point, but the three points are taming the tongue, secondly, helping the helpless, and thirdly, shunning the world's stains. Taming the tongue, helping the helpless, and shunning the world's stains. First then, uh, taming the tongue. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it carries with it big implications. One of the emphases that James will make in his epistle, in this letter, is the amount of destruction that such a small part of the body can bring. James 3 
The tongue sets on fire the whole course of life and is set on fire by hell. The implication, of course, being that there will be people who are in hell primarily because of how their tongues led them there. James is harping on a theme that's very common in wisdom literature. He's setting before us wisdom. What does it mean to be wise? It means to understand that if the tongue can bring such destruction to life, then the taming of it is wisdom. It is the fool who cannot bridle his tongue. The idea of the the bit and the bridle, or as we see in the NIV, that the tight rein is, of course, uh, the idea of how you control and direct a horse. I didn't have much time to, uh, to watch the Olympics this time around, uh, but it seemed that as it first started going on, I walked into a few rooms where it was on the TV, and what I kept seeing were the equestrian events. And for some reason, every time I was looking up at the screen, you would see this big and strong and powerful horse kind of doing this silly trot sideways, not going forward or, or running in any majestic way, but kind of trotting sideways. And of course, as I would understand it, as someone who's not informed at all on these things, that the achievement there is that you have learned to control and direct an animal that is very powerful, that is very strong, that is very dangerous. And yet with training and with something as simple as the bit and the bridle, they can be made to do something that they would not naturally do on their own. This point perfectly holds for the tongue. It possesses incredible power. It's very dangerous. It poses great danger to us. But then positively, just like you can see in those equestrian events, there is the possibility to use the tongue to do great and marvelous and wonderful things. It can be tamed to do great things for the Lord. We'll mention that a little bit later. So wisdom begins with taming the tongue. With bridling it, as James says, the one who does not, the one who does not see its imminent danger, who refuses to acknowledge the damage that it can cause, is a fool. The fool may cause destruction in various ways. Through the tongue, one may engage in coarse joking, in maintaining a course of conversation that dishonors God simply for the the type of content. The tongue may be filled with vulgar, filthy language, Uh, Growing up in uh, government schools, this was a daily game for kids. Try to invent new ways of talking in vulgar language. It was a daily challenge for anyone who did not want to talk that way. The tongue, perhaps most dangerously, causes damage in ways that nothing else in all the world can. The biggest lie, perhaps the biggest lie, that anyone will ever tell you is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. All of us have examples of things that were said to us that cut deep. And usually those things don't go away easily, if at all. It was Thomas Watson, the great Puritan pastor, who said, No physician can heal the wounds of the tongue. Now imagine that. Think about the world that we live in now with the advancements of medicine and treatment You see all of the procedures that are constantly being developed, the research that is being done. Cures for diseases are always being discovered. Ailments that instill more fear in people than the possibility of being hurt by an insult are conquered again and again and again. And yet no doctor, no scientific advancement will ever solve the problem of the pain 
that words can cause. One pastor remarks that this should solve the problem of our thinking that there is something commendable about being the kind of person who would say, I always speak my mind. You may not like it. You may not like what I have to say, but I'm always going to let you know where I stand. People think that there's something courageous or commendable about this, and the Bible would say something totally opposite. Proverbs 10, 19, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Kids, you know this song. We all know this song. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. For the Father up above is listening in love. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Just because something flies into your mind, just because you think it, does not, of course, give you reason that you should say it. Think especially of our Old Testament reading today from Ecclesiastes 10. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. He multiplies words. Someone with an unbridled tongue will end up consuming himself. His life will be filled with trouble because he believes he is always speaking his mind when really it is self-deception and the evil that pours forth from his heart. As his words multiply, as they build up, as they compound on themselves, it goes from foolishness to madness. It begins as something foolish and it ends with those around him saying he is mad. The fool never realizes either how much this plagues his life with difficulty. The difficulty that fills his life comes from his compounding of his words. He can't find his way to town, or the ESV says he can't find his way to the city. The city is supposed to be an easy thing to find, but the fool can't find his way to it. His life is difficult and has been made difficult by foolish talk. We briefly mentioned or touched on the idea of the heart, which is really the core issue. The, the Bible makes very clear that the mouth is the window to the heart. One of the most unbiblical things you could ever say is, well, yes, I said that, but I did not mean it. You meant it. You may regret it, but you meant it. Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Insofar as the tongue reveals the state of your heart, it means that an unbridled tongue reveals a heart alienated from God. And the admonition that James gives is, those, is towards those who consider themselves religious. And maybe their lives are filled with all kinds of impressive evidence of religiosity, from church attendance to membership to any number of things, but there is a stench of death that crawls up from their heart and out of their mouth. It's worthless religion. The word worthless here is a word which is most often connected to the pagan worship 
of idols, to false gods. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are walking through the city in the square, and everyone around them thinks that they themselves are gods. And so they're, they're calling the, the pagan priest, and they're trying to, to figure out how are they going to worship Paul and his entourage, because the gods have come down among us. And they tear their clothes. Paul says to them, we also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these worthless things. What you're doing right now isn't going to help you. You can't make an idol to me. I'm not a god. I am a man. I'm telling you about the true God. Turn from these worthless things. 1 Peter chapter 1. There the apostle Peter says, You were ransomed from the futile, that is, worthless vain ways inherited from your forefathers. So the stunning truth of what James is saying to us is that you can fill your life with all of the Christian religiosity you want. And if you have an unbridled tongue in the way that James describes, all that you do is worth nothing in the eyes of God. It amounts to the same thing as taking your Sunday morning, going to a pagan temple, offering a pagan sacrifice, and praying to a false god who has no existence in himself. It's all worthless. When an economy of a country collapses, and we've seen this happen at various points in history, Germany after World War I, some countries in Africa in more recent years, when that currency collapses, you see people wheelbarrowing Uh, money, cash, which would amount to millions of whatever their uh, currency denomination is, dollars or notes or whatever, just to buy a loaf of bread. People going to the bread line with a wheelbarrow full of cash. People burning money in the streets because it's worthless. We say it's worthless or almost worthless, but actually the picture that James paints is even worse than that. Because you cannot scrounge up a wheelbarrow full of religiosity to buy yourself a morsel of spiritual merit if you have an unbridled tongue. It's all worthless. You're moving in the wrong direction. It's a serious admonition. It's scary. All of us probably say things we should not say, certainly have said things we should not have said. So who is in danger of this warning? Well, First, we would say that this is uh, to make everything consistent with all of Scripture. God does not give this to us to make his people tremble in terror over anything that you've let slip, whether a word or an insult or a crude joke or a cutting comment has come out of your mouth at any time. We all stand guilty of those things. It's the unbridled tongue, the one that runs wild and free but is actually shackled in sin, the one with no sign of change or desire to change. It's the horse running wild and free. It's not the horse that refuses to run once in a while or sometimes turns the wrong way when the rein is pulled upon him. It's someone who has no grasp of the seriousness of words. It's someone who doesn't understand the high calling given to God's people to use our tongues to glorify God, to use our mouths to build each other up. It is those locked in habitual sinful use of their words, those who continue to defend and rationalize what they do because their sin has deceived them. 
for all of us, whether it is a tongue that can slip at times, whether it's the realization that we say things we ought not to say probably more often than we would like, or whether we have an unbridled tongue, we need to hear the message that God forgives the sins of the tongue. God forgives humble, repentant sinners who come to him, who look to Christ, who trust fully in him, and who believe that God will cleanse them and cleanse them of the old man to help them put on the new man. The seriousness of this warning that James gives to us might put us in a certain mentality. We might say, well, I'm just not going to talk then. Psalm 141, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So someone might say, okay, well, if this is all true, then I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to stop talking altogether, not say anything at all, and that will solve my problem. Unfortunately, God does not give us that option. He commands us to use our tongues to build up the body of Christ, to encourage one another, to speak God's truth. I am anointed to confess his name. We share in that anointing of the prophetic office of Christ, that messages of Christ, that truths of Christ, that the love of Christ would fill our mouths and would uh, leave from our tongues to go and to bless others, to build up the body of Christ. God doesn't give us the option of remaining silent. Ephesians 4.29, we read it this morning, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's not where it ends, is it? But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ask God to fill your mouth with these things, that your tongue might be used to build up and to edify. And what will fuel us to speak this way is to be absolutely taken, to be overtaken with a love and an admiration for our Savior. We read that he committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Isn't it amazing to think about the fact that Jesus in his entire earthly life here, never once sinned with his mouth, never once slipped, never joined in a coarse joke, never once sinfully cut someone down. He did that for you. He did that for me so that he might present himself a great and faithful high priest, so that he might be the one who is able to pour forth forgiveness for the sins of sinful tongues everywhere. It's the love of Jesus that ought to make you want to live like him. It's the awe of Christ that makes you say, I will use what the Lord has given me to glorify God. Jesus says he does not speak of his own. He speaks only the words that are given to him by his Father. May it be said of us that we speak that which is given to us by our God. Take my lips, let them move at the impulse of my love. Take my mouth and let them be filled with, with messages from thee. 
We're called to tame the tongue, for it is wise. We will do so as we adore and love our Savior. That is the warning against worthless religion. And very quickly then as we close, two calls to pure religion, to religion that is accepted by God. The first one is helping the helpless. There is a religion that God accepts, and it's that which manifests in its outward life the good news of what God has done in us. James focuses on two things. First, a generosity that's founded upon God's generosity towards us, and a desire for holiness founded upon a correct view of God's holiness. In the world at that time, there were probably no two groups more exposed and vulnerable than orphans and widows. There were very few opportunities for them to make any advancement in the world, usually little that even allowed them to have basic provisions. Two of the most exposed uh, groups in danger in that world, for sure. They were needy in the worst ways. And of course, the life of the redeemed sinner is a life that realizes we were in the same situation. A grateful sinner, a grateful redeemed sinner, lives life saying, I was needy. I was in need. I could not save myself, and God redeemed me. I waited for the Lord Most High, and he inclined to hear my cry. He took me from destruction's pit and from the miry clay. Up on a rock he set my feet and steadfast made my way. I was in the pit of destruction. Not only was I in the pit of destruction, I was in sticky clay. Not only was there something I could not climb out of, I could not move at all. I was stuck down there, and there was nothing that I could have done. And the Lord reached down further than the level of the ground itself. He reached down into the pit until his his firm grasp took hold of me. And not only did he bring me out of the pit of destruction, he set my feet on a rock. He wasn't content to just put me on another piece of soft ground. He did not want to put me right on the precipice of the pit again because he knew I would fall right back in. He set my feet upon a rock. And not only did he set my feet upon the rock, but he cut out for me a path. And he said, go this way. And not only did he say, go this way, he said, I will be your strength every step that you go. I will provide for you if you rely upon me. I will provide that which you need. If you trust in me, if you humble yourself before me, the redeemed sinner says, I was needy. What could I have done? Where would I be without God's salvation? Where would I be without his rescue of me? And so religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Why? Because a heart that has been gripped by the generosity of God will be generous towards others. A heart that understands how God helped you will help others. It's a life that reflects the truth of what's going on in the heart. A life that manifests what Christianity is all about. 
If those things ring true for, for you, you can look upon your state in life, the blessings of salvation, your standing in grace with any reasonableness at all, and generosity will pour out of your life. And then, secondly, shunning the, wor- the world's stains. There, we are to seek a holiness, but we seek holiness that's founded upon God's holiness. We are to be gripped more and more with a view of God's holiness that pushes us forth into our pursuit of holiness. One author says this, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, of hating what he hates, of loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. A mind, a heart that begins to stand in awe of the majesty of God's holiness will begin to think along these lines. Why will you hate what God hates? Because you will see the beauty of his holiness. Why will you love what God loves? Because you will see the beauty of his holiness. Why will you measure everything in this world according to what you find in God's word? Because you will be suspicious of your own ability to measure what's good and right and true. 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In gratitude of his call, Peter says, he who called you, so there we're reminded of election and grace and mercy and the sovereign power of God to save, that he saved us. We do not save ourselves. As he who called you is holy, so in gratitude of his call and in awe of his holiness and convinced of his power, rely upon him to cleanse you and sanctify you in this present evil age. What will push you forward to holiness? To be taken with God's holiness to know, to become more acquainted with it, to meditate on his holiness and to think about it. That will help you shun the world's stains. We help the helpless, we shun the world's stains because of what we are convinced our God has done for us. And that manifests outwardly what Christianity is all about, the cleansing, the redemption that is inward. So you hear the warning of this text. But the blessing, the invitation of this text to stand in Christ, in the power of his name, and to do those things, to help the helpless, and to shun the world's stains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and great God, we want nothing but your glory and your power, your cleansing to be known in our lives. And we confess that we fall short of these things. And yet, uh, we know that you are a good God, that you are mighty uh, to save us, that you are pleased, uh, that we should not remain in our sin and misery. And you are pleased not only to reach down into the pit of destruction and not only to set our feet upon a rock, to cut out a way, a path before us, to make us steadfast in it by your grace. We ask that you would do this 
in us, in our hearts, for the, the glory, the honor of your name. We thank you for Christ and for the price paid at Calvary. Thank you for the Spirit who comes in his stead to bring those benefits of Christ and the comfort of Christ to us each and every moment to those who look to you in humble faith and reliance. So renew us, cleanse us in these things. In Christ's name, amen. We stand together in